All right, so we're done with Acts chapter 1, and in Acts chapter 1, we ended where the text ended, which is the disciples perfectly positioned for power. Uh, They were because they were in the right place where Jesus told them to be. They're surrounded by the right people, about 120 of them. And there were, uh, they were practicing or doing the right practices, uh, which we discussed last week and what those are. And, and all of this, the right place and the right people and the right practices, is all about positioning ourselves for power, positioning ourselves for movement. Movement personally, we typically call life change or, uh, or sanctification is a more doctrinal term. Uh, movement corporately, we tend to call either the word movement, we say, oh, there's a movement, or uh, the more spiritual term is the word revival, uh, what happens when there is corporate movement. Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see what was the difference between the disciples uh, pre the crucifixion and the disciples now? What was the difference or what is the difference to this day between those who would proclaim Christ and are uh, stale or dead and those who would claim claim Christ that are alive and active? We're going to see what that difference is. Uh, We're going to see this morning what the difference is between uh, the church that is dead or stale or out outdated or irrelevant versus the church that Jesus came to plant that is alive, that is active, that is still taking ground. Uh, That is what Jesus said, where the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. What is that difference? And that difference is laid out here in Acts chapter 2 in these first four verses. And so, like many have done um, throughout the years uh, this morning, I, I want to lay out just the, the simple truths that are found in Acts chapter 2. Uh, simple truths that are a reminder to us of what does the church that Jesus came to plant look like? What are the truths that are found in it? And we'll see these in the first four verses. We'll also see them throughout the entirety of Acts chapter 2. And so that'll be my, my aim over the next few weeks. I don't know how long this is going to take to work through chapter 2, uh, but we're just going to pull out the truths that define the church that Jesus came to plant because we want to be that church. We want to be that church, the church that Jesus came to plant. And so I just want to walk you through uh, almost commentary this morning on these first four verses uh, of Acts chapter 2. starts like this. When the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, if you didn't know this, the day of Pentecost uh, or the term Pentecost uh, wasn't just created on that particular day, what we typically refer to as the day of Pentecost in the, the New Testament church. Uh, the, the Jewish faith had celebrated the day of Pentecost, uh, one historian says, for 1,447 years. And it came 50 days after the celebration of Passover, which was the Jewish feast that commemorated the moment when uh, the, the Jews were saved by the blood over their door frame, uh, and then later liberated from their captivity. It was a foreshadow, an Old Testament foreshadow of the cross, of what Christ would do when he, uh, his blood was shed on the cross as the payment for our sins. And so for about 1,500 years, uh, the Jews had been celebrating Pentecost. And uh, it, there was a, a feast of weeks that existed uh, between the Passover and the day of Pentecost. And then the day of Pentecost was traditionally understood as the day that the Jews received the, uh, the law from God, where Moses got it on the mountain and then carried it down uh, as the picture of how the community was supposed to operate. 
Uh, and so now about 1,500 years later, uh, the, the world, not just the Jewish family, uh, is going to experience uh, now not the, the law, but the spirit of grace through the empowering or the fulfillment, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, remember, Jesus had told the disciples uh, that not many days from then that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so we use that term baptized, and sometimes people are like, ah, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a, a Pentecostal term? No, that was a Jesus term. He's the one who coined it. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said, not many days from now you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1.8, he said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus instructing his church that the Holy Spirit will fall, and the reason the Holy Spirit will fall is so that you might be empowered to be witnesses of Jesus, uh, that the, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit and his primary function in coming is so that the church and the believer would be empowered to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Christ in our lives, to proclaim Christ corporately as the church. Uh, this is why even to this day, uh, you will sense the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in moments when you begin, begin to proclaim Christ. I mean, there can even be times in church. Now, all of church is supposed to be about Jesus, right? Uh, but there are times even in church when, uh, when the church collectively, I mean, I think we just sensed it a couple moments ago, uh, when we were singing All Hail King Jesus, that when the collective voice of the church is going up, elevating Jesus, you just sense, you feel the, the Holy Spirit is in this place. I'm not just talking about goosebumps. I'm not just talking about a little bit of motivation. I'm talking about the fulfillment of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit resting, okay? Elevates Jesus. By the way, if ever you wonder individually or corporately, what is the difference between uh, maybe the, the, the Christian who is stale, the Christian who feels nothing, who senses nothing, the church that is stale, the church that senses or feels nothing, uh, and, and the ones that are alive? It's this. It's this Holy Spirit it's this Holy Spirit filling us, empowering us, changing and transforming us. And so this morning, I want to walk through what we see here. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, so this, this day that was already a day uh, of celebration or commemoration for the, the Jewish people, on that particular day, and we're going to see why uh, from almost a strategic perspective, I think God picked this day. Uh, we'll look into that more next week. But uh, in short, the, in Jerusalem, were gathered Jewish people from all across the world because of this holiday. And so they were already gathered in Jerusalem, uh, people who spoke different languages and people who represented different nations already there. And so God in his timing, he knows what he's doing, uh, but we learned something about God's timing here in this text. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We cannot diminish or discredit this idea of how important it was that the church was already together and unified prior to the falling of the Holy Spirit. I preached a sermon a couple of weeks ago on the essential nature of unity in the church. Uh, unity is something Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer. It is something Paul instructed in 1 Corinthians. It is something that Peter reflected upon in one of his last letters after watching 
watching the growth of the church over 30 years, this constant drumbeat of unity in the church. And here, the church is already gathered, and they are unified, and they are together in one place. Together meaning not just physically all in the same room, but together they are of one heart and one mind. The church that Jesus came to plant is unified It is unified through the person of Christ, and it is unified through the Holy Spirit. If just the promise of the Holy Spirit had already brought unity to the church, how much more than when the Holy Spirit actually fell should it bring unity? And should we exist in unity to this day? Let me expound upon this in a couple of ways. First, uh, everything we're going to look at this morning, there is both an individual and a collective nature to it. So let's just talk for a second about the essential nature of unity, um, even within your own household, unity in your own marriage, not just existing in the same house, but actually walking in unity. And Lindsay and I know uh, that the, the, the times or the seasons in our house that are the most disruptive, where there is the most spiritual tension, where there is the most infighting, are the times when her and I aren't walking in full unity. When there's a conversation that needs to be had, when we need to to restore or rekindle the unity of our marriage, it's the same is true in your household, my friends. The same is true in our houses, that there is power in this spiritual unity. The same then is true in the church, in the church that Jesus came to plant. And uh, part of something that each and every one of us can do uh, to ensure this power of the Holy Spirit in our midst is to operate in unity. That doesn't mean conformity. It doesn't mean that we all always have to agree or think exactly the same way about every little thing. Uh, But it does mean that in grace, we let love cover over some of those differences. Or it means uh, that biblically, as it lays out, we allow the biblical plans of reconciliation and restoration to deal with that which would divide so that we can walk in unity. It is not a, uh, a mystery or irrelevant that the church is unified here before the power comes out. And so we must operate in this way. And so here they are. Here is the church. The church is all together. They are gathered in one place. And there they sit, and I believe great anticipation. It had been promised to them that the Holy Spirit would come, and then he would come soon. And so they have been waiting there for 10 days. And I love that the disciples practice what I will call active waiting. They don't uh, practice passive waiting. They practice active waiting. And so they knew that they were supposed to stay there. But while they were there, they were praying. And while they were there, they were operating in this unity. Uh, And so there they are. They're praying with an eager anticipation. What will this look like? I mean, they had never seen like a mass fall of the Holy Spirit before. Uh, They had seen some of them, uh, the Holy Spirit fall on Jesus on the day of his baptism, and they'd seen other Holy Spirit type things when Jesus was on the earth, but they had no idea or picture probably of what is this going to look like when the Holy Spirit finally comes in the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made routinely throughout his days on earth that he would send this helper, that he would send this spirit. So there they sat in anticipation, eagerness, awaiting. 
And we learn something about this, uh, this move of God, this power of the Holy Spirit uh, as they sat there in their anticipation. Uh, by the way, an anticipation that I believe that we all should have an eagerness, a hope, an expectation to see God move in power, uh, to see his spirit um, fill his church uh, and to move in new or, or even ways of old that we haven't seen in a while. Uh, this anticipation is something that the church that Jesus came to plant should always have uh, an eagerness and a desire to see God move. And so there they sat. And as they sat there in this anticipation, it says, and suddenly, and suddenly. See, God moves in his timing. God moves in his own timing. And so suddenly, even though they were actively waiting, it's like he still snuck up on them. I was in Churchill's the other day, and uh, there was one of you, an attender of this church, uh, and they were walking through Churchill's, okay, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be a nice pastor and go say hi, right? Uh, and so I walked over to them, and they like turned right at the wrong moment and looked at me and went, ah, right? And I was like, oh, it's because of the six bottles of wine you're carrying, right? And just kidding. They had like milk and cheese, okay? All right. I was like, I didn't mean to do that. I don't know if it was because they're like, oh, you exist outside of the stage or what. But like, you know, we just had this little, and um, they're like, where did you come from, <laughs> right? This is what happened here. It says they were sitting later. It says they were sitting. Can I say Jewish worship and prayer, uh, sitting is not a posture of worship and prayer. And so they were like playing Jewish board games or something, Right? And in this case, I know they had been actively waiting throughout the 10 days, but, but we see something in here, which is like almost like an interesting dichotomy, that they were actively waiting, but then there's also these seasons, right? Even in, your, even in your pursuit, even in your desire to see God move, like where you're like, okay, it's like, it's like a chill moment. And it was actually in the chill moment when they were sitting, when the Holy Spirit suddenly showed up. And friends, we position ourselves and we position ourselves and we position ourselves and we pray just like they prayed, but we also understand that God moves when God moves. Because the very last thing that any of us want to be a part of is a manufactured move of God. The, the very last thing that any of us should want to be a part of, even in our own lives, is manufacturing spiritual growth because that won't last you know what does last? You know what does have power? Actual moves of God. And so here, they were, uh, they were positioning themselves, right place, right people, all of that. They had been praying throughout these 10 days. We saw that earlier in Acts chapter 1. But in this particular moment, it seems like it caught them off guard. And all of a sudden, suddenly, whoo, there he was. Some of you have felt these woo moments. You're in church and you're going and you're going and you're going, whoo, where'd you come from? Or you're in church, we're in church and we're singing and we're singing and we're singing and then it's like, whoo, where'd you come from? And he's there and there's a power and there's almost like a physical presence to it. We'll, we'll see that here in a second. He says, and suddenly there came where from heaven. You and I cannot, no matter how pretty the song is, no matter how good the vocalist is, no matter how many times I yell, no matter what is going on in a room, you cannot manufacture it. Real power comes from heaven. Now, there are ways 
that we can uh, um, um, walk in line with Christ. And um, uh, one time, or, uh, there are ways where we can diminish or uh, I think like deter the Spirit from showing up. And if you're like, oh no, you can't do that. Well, why do you think Paul says don't quench the Holy Spirit, right? He says that because there are things that we can do, right? Um, like preach a false gospel uh, or not elevate Jesus, elevate man instead, uh, um, diminish the truth of Scripture, right? And so it's our part uh, to preach a true gospel, to always be elevating Jesus, to be completely reliant upon the Holy Spirit, to not attempt to manipulate or to manufacture. But in the end, all power that we desire both internally uh, and corporately as a body must come from heaven, must be move of God, must be him showing up and it being undeniably him. You say, well, how do I know? How do we know that it's undeniably him? Are there signs? Are there indicators uh, that it's actually a move of God? Yeah, there are. Let me show you a couple of them. Let me show you a couple of them. And suddenly there came, by the way, the, the existence of unity in the body is one because the Holy Spirit brings unity. So that's one indicator of a true move of God. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It doesn't actually say there was a wind. It says there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. You can feel it when it's a move of God. Like there's something, like, and some of you, I hope all of us have experienced this. When, when you're present in a space and it's just like, did you feel that? Do you know that just happened? Sometimes it almost sits like in a good way, like a weight. In this one, it was a, a mighty rushing wind. One of my favorite commentators, a guy by the name of Matthew Henry, wrote a few hundred years ago that uh, this text reminds him of Psalm 135 when it talks about how the Lord has the wind in the storehouses of heaven and he sends it when he desires. That God who, who has the storehouses of, of heavenly wind, like there's no shortage to it, right? There's not like there's a little bit of power that he has to send out. No, there's a lot of power, uh, right? That I, I know that God speaks in a still small voice sometimes, but when God came to plant his church, he did not come in the still small voice. He came in the mighty rushing wind. He came in a mighty way. He came in a powerful way. He came in a, uh, I'm going to really show up and everyone's going to know it. In, in fact, most people think that the reason that other people began to gather around the house that the disciples were in, uh, by the way, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit moved in a specific place, okay? Like he moved in that house. Uh, most people believe that the, the way that the Holy Spirit moved in such a way on that particular house, that it began to draw other people there that they're one of the ways you know it is a genuine move of God, that it is a real move of the Holy Spirit, is that other people will begin to be drawn to that place. Oh, what's going on there? That's exactly what happens here in the story. And so suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And what did it do? It filled the entire house one of the ways that you know it's a genuine move of God is that when the Holy Spirit moves, uh, he grabs all of the believers that are present with him. 
And one of my prayers for five and a half years now as a church is that the Holy Spirit would move and that he would move in such a way in our midst that brings unity, not division, that brings everyone along. It's my job as a pastor to pastor an entire congregation, not a small segment of it, that he would move in such a way that it brings everybody with him. Why? Because that's what we see here, that when the Holy Spirit moved, it wasn't like half of them went this way, and then the other half went that way, and the other half didn't look at that half and go, I wonder what those guys are doing. Or those guys, they're just a bunch of emotionally hyped people, right? And this half didn't look over that half and go, right? Like, well, they just, you know, they're crazies, right? Or they don't understand, right? This half could say to that half, well, they just don't really understand God. If they did, they'd be up here with us. No, no, no. When the Holy Spirit fell, it fell on the entire house. We've, we've spent, we spent an entire summer talking about how the word house, by the way, is always a picture of the word church, okay? When the Holy Spirit moves, he falls on the whole place. He brings unity. He brings togetherness. He moves everyone as one. That's been my desire here. That's been our prayer for five and a half years. Holy Spirit, when you fill, when you move, move us all at the same time. Move us all together in unity because that's how we know it's really you. You fill the entire house. Now, notice here, it says he filled the entire house. He fell on, he fell on a specific house. Now, we've already talked about why we think he fell on that particular house, right? It was the house that Jesus told them to go to. It was the right place with the right people doing the right practices. Uh, and so, Holy Spirit, when he falls, man, he likes to fall on like a specific place in a specific group. And he's up to something when he does. And he wants to bring the whole house, everybody who's gathered in it, with him. Next line is this. They were... They're sitting. I've already talked to you about that, right? Like there are these seasons of time where we're pursuing Christ, we're pursuing Christ, but man, we can just be sitting around. We can just be like uh, almost in like a moment of break in the midst of our pursuit and God can show up in that moment. Now, he chooses to do this sometimes, but you also read the rest of the book of Acts, and you'll see that there are other times where he shows up more immediately, and you're like, well, which one is which? Which one is real? Which one is not? It's him moving in his timing. That's what's real. See, there's another story where the church is gathered, and they start to pray, and the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit shows up, and they're like, how do we know it's the Holy Spirit? He says it shook the whole house. We've talked about that before. I'm like, that'd be a good day at church. And if we were here and all of a sudden, like, we got all, like, almost like an earthquake, right? So it shook the whole house. Now that time, it was almost like a direct response to their prayer. And so sometimes we see the Holy Spirit. He comes and he fills as a direct response to prayer. Other times you see they're in this like season of pursuit. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit showed up and breathed a new life. So what's our job? Keep pursuing keep pursuing, keep praying, keep being in the right place, keep being the right people, keep doing the right practices, keep on going, keep praying, keep pursuing, let him move on his timing. How will we know it's his timing? He's going to bring all of us with him, right? Now, in there, it says then uh, that uh, the entire house where they were sitting, and then this is what happens next. So there's almost like this physical sense of like uh, feeling the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And again, I'm not just talking about goosebumps, okay? Uh, I'm talking about like, like, a, like a, a transformative power, 
okay, that moves through. And then this is what happens next. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I can almost move so quick here that we can, like, fail to, like, pause for a second and recognize the absurdity is, is a bad word, but the uniqueness of what's going on in this moment. There they are, 120 people sitting in a house, and all of a sudden they hear a sound. And then, after that, divided tongues as of fire appear on each and rest on each one of them. Now, there's so much going on here uh, in this one little phrase. First, fire has fallen from heaven before in the Old Testament. And typically when fire fell from heaven in the Old Testament, what it was doing was consuming a dead sacrifice as an indication of God's purifying fire. Here, now, God's purifying fire has already fallen on a sacrifice. It fell on Christ 50 days or so prior to this moment. And so now the fire is falling, not on a dead sacrifice uh, so that we might be pure. Now a fire is falling on living sacrifices, us, right? The fire, it says, was uh, divided. Why? The fire divided on each, every one of them so that the church wouldn't have to be divided. The fire fell on each one of them. Why? Because then they're all bringing that together then. We are seeing here both the individual and the corporate nature, again, of the church. That as God is doing something individually, he is also doing something corporately. And so here God falls in an individual way, but he's also falling in a collective and a corporate way. And so what happens here is the the fire falls, and and, uh, as I alluded to earlier, one of the things that the fire represents is like the fire of the gospel, the fire of purification. And one of the ways you know that the Holy Spirit's filling was, was real and was genuine in your heart or in the church is that there begins to be a desire, a craving for purity. See, sometimes it's really fun to uh, feel like, oh man, I just was filled with the Holy Spirit and it to result in power. Power, oh, power's fun. Power's fun. But in the scriptures, uh, power coincides with uh, here uh, with, with, with purity, that when the fire of the gospel um, begins to fall, uh, that it doesn't just produce power, but it also produces uh, like the gospel love melting our heart of stone again and, uh, and birthing something in a, inside of us like a, a, a new um, disdain for sin, uh, a new desire for holiness. Like one of the ways you know the Holy Spirit is stirring something inside of you uh, is that you begin to desire the pursuit of Christ more, uh, right? It's like your, your heart is being melted away again. Your, your heart of stone is, uh, is being turned alive again, right? The coldness of your heart is melting down and a love for Christ is coming out again, a desire for holiness, a, a hatred for sin that comes from this Holy Spirit. Some of you, that's where you're at right now. Like you're practicing the practices that we have talked about. Uh, You are operating in an outward way that appears to be obedient to Christ, but your heart is cold or it is hard or it is uh, in some ways either stale or opposed even to Christ. But because of built-in patterns, you are still operating in an outwardly pious or moral way, right? But your heart is in desperate need of a fresh melting of the fire of the gospel. 
come in and begin to, to melt it again in such a way that brings you back to the cross, that brings you uh, back to, to, to gazing at the beauty of Jesus. And you know how? You'll know when that has happened. Those sinful patterns, those worldly desires will begin to melt away. And what you once thought was lovely, you will not even want to look at. And by the way, some of you, you have been trying to arrive at that point by yourself. And you might force your way into it, but it'll be miserable. And eventually you'll fail again. And you get even into a more negative pattern of why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? Would you stop for a second and let the fire of the Spirit come in and do what only it can do to melt your heart again? Some of you, you're living in a sinful pattern and you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon and all it's done is bounce off and then gone away. Would you let the Holy Spirit finally burn through it? Would you walk in what is best, holiness and righteousness? This is part of what this fire was representing and what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. The second thing that the fire is representing and what the Holy Spirit can do in our lives is it's a fire that is a power. Like John the Baptist said when he said, one's going to come who will baptize you not in water but in fire, that there will be a power that begins to come out of you. And what is that power all about? It is a power to proclaim Christ. Uh, it is a power to stand in boldness. Like there was one individual, his name was Stephen, and he was filled in the Holy Spirit in this way. And then he ends up giving like the most epic speech of all time. And then he is faced with death. And even to that, he will not cower. It says he is filled with the Holy Holy Spirit, and he just stands there and faces it, proclaiming Christ. There's going to be another time uh, where it's going to be said of Peter that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And this individual who previously had betrayed Christ now is going to deliver a sermon that is so clear and so compelling and so bold and so right on that 3,000 are going to come to know Christ. There's going to be another time uh, where Paul is going to be filled with the Spirit, and he's going to know exactly how to communicate communicate to the crowd that is standing in front of him. And over and over in this book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, we're going to see how the filling of the Holy Spirit empowers both individuals and the church to be about the work of expanding the kingdom of God by proclaiming Jesus. By proclaiming Jesus. And so this fire is this picture of both my heart melting under the gospel and the beauty of it, and then me being empowered to proclaim Christ in all that I say and do. And this is what was happening on that particular moment. It says, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and it rested on each one of them. And they were all, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful moment. All of them were filled with it. There's the unity piece again. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I love the, the picture. We're, we're, we know what it is to fill something. We know what it is to, to, uh, to see something that is empty and to see something that is filled. 
And for here they are filled with what? They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then look what begins to happen in that moment. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what this is, is a, uh, it's an outcome, and we'll talk about the outcome more next week, but it is then a, uh, it's a manifestation of what the Spirit was doing inside of them that is now playing itself out in a supernatural way with the intended desire of proclaiming Jesus. For that's what the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit comes in, when he empowers the believer, it then gives them a supernatural ability to proclaim Christ. Not always like we see in here. There are multiple um, ways that the Holy Spirit begins to move in power. I've already laid some of them out, but all toward the same aim and end, proclaiming Jesus. It's also interesting where the Holy Spirit falls. That the Holy Spirit falls in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the place where Christ was crucified. It was the place where Christ was betrayed. It was the place where uh, Christ was uh, handed over in the middle of the night, the place where he was beaten. Uh, It was in Jerusalem, uh, the place where Satan thought he had his victory. It's in Jerusalem where the disciples had betrayed him and cowered away in fear. Uh, It was in Jerusalem where it seemed like the enemy had won. And I love that it is in that place where Jesus decides to send his Holy Spirit. It's like it's a reminder to each and every one of us that even in the place that the enemy wants us to think is our place of defeat or our place uh, where we had rejected him the most, that in that place the Holy Spirit can show up and do something. I want to stand with a little story. There's a guy in our church who shared his story with me a couple of weeks ago. I think he's in here right now. And he was sharing, I'm going to summarize a little bit of his story, but it starts off by saying, I've spent years doing all of the right practices as a follower of Christ. I knew what to do and I, I knew how to do it. And that included uh, me serving and volunteering and, and being an active member of a, a congregation and, and reading and doing everything that I was supposed to do. But there was something missing underneath. There was a, a lack of this fire. There was a lack of the transformation that was needed. But the patterns of Christian behavior had been going on long enough up until that point. And the patterns had settled in that even a, a sermon or even an inspiring moment uh, or even like an extra bit of reading like really didn't break in and change anything but then there was a moment of uh, of greater need or maybe even greater fear because of a health concern that led him to ask somebody in our church like like what is missing here like what can I do because the the serving and all of this like it doesn't seem to be breaking in and I think some of you you're here right now because you have weeks or months or years or decades of spiritual practice decades of what you think is pursuit of Christ but yet a staleness underneath and the fire it's out it's cold there is nothing there or uh, as one text says there is an appearance of godliness but you know what's resting underneath And every move of God is a move from heaven, not man. And so I can't motivate you enough to transform you. 
No song will do it. No sermon will pierce through it. But the gospel in its freshness from the Holy Spirit coming down and filling you again will change it in a moment. And I am pleading with you. Let him break in. And some of you are like, I know, but, but I get nervous. I get nervous about this Holy Spirit talk. Like I've seen the excess. You know what? Probably some of the same things you get worried about, I get worried about too. But you know what else I worry about? Is when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. That should make you just as nervous. See, where every believer has to get to is a simple statement. Holy Spirit, I want everything you have for me. And I will not let fear of man, and I will not let tradition, and I will not let preconceived idea stop me from experiencing everything you have for me. This phrase, the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be through the rest of this book. We're not going to be able to get away from it. And so let's just settle what it is. It is a moment where God in his presence comes over you like it's a fresh or a new. Breaks in, melts, and empowers you to begin to walk in ways either that you had at once or you never have. Can I tell you, it is the only way to walk this faith out. Every other way is exhausting. Life draining instead of life giving. And I believe it's a simple prayer. And I want to invite you into it before we leave today. Would you pray with me? Father, we've already seen this work in one person in our church. I know many others would say the same. That an honesty before you opens up our hearts for this filling. And so, Father, I think that anyone who knows that they need that, their heart is already beating, their mind is already racing. So, Father, would you help us to put away any spirit of fear and to simply pray, I want all that the Holy Spirit has for me. You can pray that in your own heart. Holy Spirit, as you have been faithful to do under Christ's instruction for thousands of years now, I pray that you would fill each person who desires I think of Jesus' teaching on prayer. How faithful will a good father be to grant his Holy Spirit to those who ask? And Father, I pray that this moment would serve for many as a time when real transformation began. When the gospel melted their heart again, when sin became disgusting again when desire to proclaim Christ 
sparks flowed out of them. And Father, we're gathered here as your church. We don't want to manufacture anything, but we want to pursue. And we really want to see you move. We know you move in us individually when we operate under the guidance of your spirit. But we also know that there are spiritual and supernatural things that you can do that are so clearly from you, that are moves beyond anything we could ever pretend to create on our own. So Father, I'm praying for a suddenly moment in our midst when you just come and breathe in. Father, because we do desire to be the church that you came to plant, when you do so, bring all of us with it. Complete unity. Formed as one. Father, where there is hardness of heart right now, melt it. Where there is unrepentant sin, think of a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, it works its way in. Cleanse us. there might be any bouts of division known or unknown rid us of it and Holy Spirit that we have said it individually we say it corporately we want everything everything that you have for your church. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.